Well, welcome back to Potter's Pockets 008. Today, we're going to talk about chapters one through three in uh, volume two of the Harry Potter series. Um, uh, the worst birthday, so the Dursleys managed to make a birthday worse than the first 11. Two, Dobby's warning, and so we need house elves, and that uh, will open up a slew of issues, undoubtedly, that we'll continue to explore throughout the, the canon here. And three, the burrow. We get to see our first wizarding before we go too far, welcome back, Mr. West Chance and uh, Miss Sarah Miller. Hey, how are you doing? Greetings, everyone. It's, it's good to be back. It's good to be back in San Diego and recording with all of you. And um, thank you for staying up late for us, Miss Sarah Miller. Miss Sarah Miller is on the East Coast. We're all on the West Coast, so she's three hours ahead of us. Right, right. Appreciate yeah, it. Sort of. It's summer break, so. Yeah, that and the. And the living's easy. It's a good time. So we not only wanted to talk about the first three chapters of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, just diving in there today, but also as sort of an interregnum or intermediary, we all read J.R.R. Tolkien's, I would say, fairly dry um, <laughs> essay on fairy stories. Um, and I definitely noticed that I prefer to read print where I can use my hand and focus more of my neurons on reading and underline things than uh, read off a, a magical glowing screen, uh, uh, which, well, I suppose it's getting more and more beautiful. And Tolkien was interested. It was interesting to, for him to note that the creations of our imagination and fantasy are often far more beautiful than our actual creations in cities, like smokestacks and mm. ugly things like those. But I wanted to make sure to ask you a question about this, um, Wes, because you were talking about this notion of you catastrophe. I, I, I wanted. Uh, what is it about this essay that you thought would be particularly relevant and helpful to us in our, in our project here? Because I, I saw a couple, I think, glimpses of gold in there too, but you, you've mentioned this term, you catastrophe, as opposed to dis catastrophe. And I was just wondering uh, what it yeah. is that you found so provocative about it. I, I really like this essay. I know it is a bit, a bit all over the place um, and it takes I think a little getting into it. Um, but once you read it a few times, I think if you see more and more of uh, yeah. all of the, the range of stuff he's talking about here. And uh, so he, he goes into um, to magic and enchantment, which I thought was really relevant to Harry Potter because that was kind of my big question starting to read these books again was like, so what is magic? How does magic work? What is magic for? And what is it not for? And so I thought that would be a good place to kind of start from, right? Tolkien is, is similarly very, uh, he's very tough to pin down about what magic is in his works as well. And his works are so influential and, and stand so, so loom so huge, you know, in, in 20th century fantasy and, and just kind of literature, imaginative literature, speculative literature generally. So, so that was the first thing. But then as I was thinking about it more, I was like, Whoa, the beginning of this book, uh, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, that is the first one is a kind of you catastrophe in, in Tolkien's sense. It's the sudden joyous turn, but it happens before the story starts. It's like in the background of everything is Harry Potter surviving and Voldemort being uh, sort of disembodied or whatever it is that happens to him. So uh, it's all like, very mysterious. Just like in Tolkien, where we hear the story that Sauron was defeated at the mm -hmm. They are interesting. Very good. Yes. Yeah. And I, I like that the joyful moment that he he actually that is part of the definition of a U catastrophe, a quick turn, uh, you know, kata down from strophe turn you good. So good downturn. Uh, right. <laughs> and so which reminds me a bit of uh, the idea behind the comedy. And I actually would be interested in understanding 
uh, how you distinguish between a comedy and a uh, catastrophe. But, oh, yeah. but Tolkien really focuses on that joy element, that yes. it's a, it, there's a production of joy from this moment. And uh, uh, I, I imagine a, a, a moment of joy that we experience as well, and that that's part of the, the addiction that we have to say Tolkien and, uh, uh, and also, uh, I'm, excuse me, I'm, I'm blanking on Game of Thrones uh, Martin, writer. George R.R. Uh, George R.R. Martin, right, and yeah. J.K. Rowling. Uh, that, um, that all those people with yeah. the with the consonant with the two consonants or three consonants in their name. Yeah, yeah, yeah the fantasy <laughs> authors are are disturbingly close to the the uh, the uh, killers, right? The uh, the, lone, <laughs> the lone killers who are often we get their middle names, right? But the the fantasy authors have two. But so to I'm wondering whether. Do you think then the function of fantasy or possibly the magic of these books is that the joy that the characters experience in a legitimate way is joy that we can then mimic and, mm. and feel ourselves so that the sort of alchemy or the magic of one of these stories that sort of creates the secondary world based on our primary world here besides simply being curious is to pr provide for us sort of a moment so perfectly orchestrated or that has such a pleasant and different surprise for us that it jumps off the page and into our own experience and hearts in the same way that myth and history interplay for Tolkien. Him suggests, yeah, go on. Oh no, go finish that up. Yeah. Well, I was going to say that it, it almost seems as if what he's saying is that myth is the ideal form of history that's constantly being interacted with by conscious mortals. That, yeah, yeah. And that, no. and that, yeah, and that the function of story and that story actually will tend towards myth away from strict objective history, point Herodotus over Thucydides here, um, <laughs> uh, because we will tend to idealize yes. those yes. Who, who were originally maybe perhaps normal people, but we will, we, will, we will then add sort of real people, but we'll add the archetypal characteristics that were once just a woman or a man to a specific king. Now we're first to a prince and then to a specific prince. Like say first, you know, there's just a, a young hero and then there's a young prince hero and then there's an actual King Arthur. And uh, right. So now uh, you're getting at, I think the, the kind of hierarchy of myths that, that Peterson likes to talk about, which I think is there too, right? Like, so over time, the myths that are the most attractive, the most wish fulfilling and joy producing tend to, tend to be believed in or acted upon at least. And, and I think that's where Tolkien winds up in this essay. And um, Sarah, you should probably get into this a little bit as well, because this is where he sort of, he shows his hand maybe as much as anywhere in his work that he is writing from a place of, of Christian faith. Mm. Um, and and I, I think it's, well. Gospel it's, as it's, fairy story it's, and as ultimate you catastrophe. Go on, sorry. Yeah, no, it's right. It's like the true myth, right? This idea that, uh, there's there's this particular story which has uh, a special status um, and and within which like all of these other stories in some sense uh, like have their place. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, I don't know if we lost Sarah or she's. No, oh, no, I know I'm here. I uh, yeah, no, I'm just I'm listening. Um, I yeah, that, I think you guys kind of distilled it the way I would say I don't want to. I don't want to add anything that's just redundant. Um, well, it's tough. Right? Like, I, so how does, well, I would, I would ask to be more pointed about like, where does rolling 
fit into that? Does she, I don't know her, her like speeches and things as well, or if she's given talks and stuff about, about these topics at all. I, I don't know what, you, what your thoughts are about where she fits into this kind of scheme of, um, of, of myth versus fairy tale versus uh, history, all of that sort of thing. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, yeah, I, I don't, I don't have the same background in like the, the history, history or study of myth that you guys uh, do. I mean, I know, yeah, I, I've taught this essay before and um, I think a really important part of, of Tolkien's view of the eucatastrophe is that it is not the perfect form of the comedy. It's the perfect form of the fairy tale. And, um, and it is not the happy ending, but the, um, the turn that makes any ending possible, I guess, if that makes sense. Like, so with my students, it's always really important to know that, or for them to, to, to identify that the sudden joyous turn is not the moment when the hobbit the hobbits are bowed to by the crowned king it's not when um it, it's it's not the ending it's not the coronation it's the it's the thing when like all hope seems lost there's like the sudden turn from darkness to to to, to light that he goes out of his way to say that does not deny the future possibility of pain um which is that that's that's his christianity um is that that pain is um full um about this in another poem that tolkien does called mythopoeia that um that um uh uh he he's much more he he's much more poetic in his in his um illustration of a of a worldview that like sees the the story of christ as like the sh- the true myth through which um uh all other things like are reflected or at least all what he thinks all other fairy tales are reflected and i think it comes down to like what he sees um as like a fundamental part of human beings like um uh, like of human nature um if he th- i mean if to him fairy tales are like a story that every every human being ought to have access to well what is it that they appeal to that every every human being is or needs maybe it's a myth i don't know um but mm-hmm. it seems to me some that like something that every human being has the capacity to do is hope um and uh whether or not those totally. hopes are fulfilled is a separate question, but yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I have anything more to add beyond that. Like you guys seem to have a pretty solid grasp. Okay. Okay. No, I, yeah, I just, I, I find that, I find that interesting that she, she puts in the kind of the beginning of her book, this moment. And then um, it's, it's kind of the, it's kind of the moment to which everything converges, right. Uh, whether you look forward or backward. And that's kind of where Tolkien ends up as well. I thought, I thought there was just a very interesting parallel there. Yeah. Yeah. And well, there were a couple things about that too, that I, I just sort of tangentially wanted, wanted to touch on uh, the, the one thing that he said being that um, pe- people tend to, I think of the form of Epic and myth in reverse that people think that epics come first. And then from those there are hero myths. And then from those are derived folk tales when in reality, Actually, the epic is the crown jewel that yeah. is consciously 
It is a consciously created tre treasure chest, which a, a great researcher and poet will then put as much of uh, the styles of those poets from uh, the tradition before him into. He'll take his contemporary styles, or say he's Virgil or Dante. He'll take uh, contemporary different language styles, like the language of Provençal and Arno Daniel and Dante. He'll take the epic writers from before, like um, uh, stories about Homer for Dante and Virgil. And so that, um, that uh, it is as if, as a culture, we develop our consciousness, so do we develop that the way by which we transmit our myths, that as we become more detailed or more differentiated out, so do our myths become more differentiated out, potentially because we become wealthy and luxurious enough to produce people that can devote themselves to the luxury of studying letters and stories. And so that the crown jewel of, say, a people would be the production of the ultimate treasure house of their myth, which would be an epic. And that what I feel like is part of the power of Rowling and Tolkien here is that they get very close to that epic status, that they produce sort of myths and their scope is, is epic, but that um, uh, there, there is something distinguishing fantasy, what I would call these as fantasies from, from, ep from epic. And it, I, I couldn't do it maybe off the cuff right now, but I do think that that, well, yeah. So I was just going to say, like, just as a, as an example, um, today, uh, my brother and I were texting, uh, because I saw this movie trailer for the next Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them movie, which features is the subtitle of which is the crimes of Grindelwald. Yes. Um, and it looks, I'll be honest, it looks off, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, Jude Law, Dumbledore sold. Um, but, uh, I mean, that's beside the point. The point is, to, to your point, Alex, like, it ha it's epic in scope, right? Because um, there's this one moment where Harry is buying books at uh, Flourish and Blots in, which is, by the way, a great name for a bookstore, but um, in uh, Diagon Alley, and he's buying um, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them by Newt Scamander. And now there's this whole um, potential series of, of stories that are offshoots of this one great collection of mm -hmm. myths. This mythopoesis, right? um, like you were saying earlier. Yeah, yeah. Like that, that, you know, there were seven Harry Potter books and now there's, there's a play and there's these new movies. But, um, but I think to your point, like, and this is something that I know, Wes, you've asked before, like, well, what is, the, what is it that makes these different from a myth? Well, I don't think it's as simple as, or from an epic, I don't think it's as, because there's like, there's magic or things that defy the laws of physics and nature as we know it in, you know, like other, other epics, but like there are monsters and other epics. There are, um, uh, demons and there's, um, there's great, there's, there's things that, that don't exist in our everyday world. But I think he says that, that fantasy is about how you experience a story. It's like, it's about, it's, about how it functions as a story so that like maybe fantasy is a fan like the fantasy epic the high fantasy is um like a subgenre of epic because it ha it functions in a particular way i don't know if that makes if that makes any but one of those functions is the is the recovery function one of those functions 
is the the secondary world that's both believable and arrestingly strange. The one of the functions is um is the escape, and then the the U catastrophe, which I think you know I've only read maybe like four or five epics, and maybe like the Divine Com I don't know maybe the Divine Comedy and the Aeneid are really the only ones that seem to have this sudden joy's turn. But quite frankly, like they don't they're not that sudden mm-hmm. like <laughs> like uh I, I don't know i i wouldn't go so far as to say any of them have have this moment when all all hope seems lost and then boom like out of nowhere there's the the dawn rises and the st- stone table breaks and all of that you know what i yeah. mean without it seeming yeah. that's without like some crazy deus ex machina that then makes the entire thing unbelievable that's the thing like the the u catastrophe has to be believable within the scope of the world created so um that's what makes it functional otherwise it just feels right or like the internal consistency is the the way by which you measure it yeah wes what were you saying well i I just like the um the elements of of recovery and escape there uh and just to like get into the the first few chapters of book two here right like we've got an elf uh so much dobby the elf We've got um, the flying car, right, uh, and breaking Harry out, like sort of literally escaping from his his Muggle chains there. Um, and the uh, the other interesting thing, though, is that there's this like sort of legal element of um, uh, not of misuse of ma- improper use of magic, right? Um, so there's there's something like uh, the the limits upon magic. Are, are very clear um, in these stories. And I, f- I found that really interesting too, where um, it's, it's particularly the, the humans and particularly the young humans, right? The children's uh, use of magic, which is which has got this limit upon it. Whereas the elf, the house elf, he seems to be able to do um, things within his own, within his own uh, set of, of limitations, which remain mysterious at this point. Um, so yeah, it's not, it's not like you can just sort of like wave your hand and anything happens there there's still rules uh, and there's still like emerging um understanding of those rules as well right right it's, it's interesting it reminds me of emma jung and marie uh louise von Franz's description of the young knight in their uh the grail quest work where the young knight who sets upon the 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 path to the quest at first identifies with the great hero and so he becomes very proud and arrogant because he arrogates to himself the idea that he is an accomplished hero, like what he wishes to be, but is not yet. And so Harry, when he comes home, the idea about him is that now he is a terrifying wizard, right? And this is how he keeps uh, D- the Dursleys in, and particularly Dudley in check. However, the case is that, as you said, he has extremely prescribed powers right now not only does he not have uh that that much magic to his name yet um his transfiguration is what he's capable of perhaps changing uh uh like some like a match into a mouse or something like that small stuff Um, but even beyond that he's not even allowed to practice over the summer so so he's like that young knight or squire who who's sort of, or I even think of like a college kid coming back home after tasting freedom for the first time that he, uh, he's sort of inflated by the sense of what magic has, has given to him. And he's, he's going to be brought down a peg or two 
um, by seeing that even though he, he may have transformed quite, quite a bit over this last year, uh, when, when he returns to the mundane world, the outside world, the, the effects of that which he has learned are not, are not maybe so great as he might have imagined. Um, yeah. Just to add one weird thing about Dobby, because I think this might be contentious and maybe a little too overly allegorical. I was wondering if either of you read, so I see a tremendous parallel between him and, De and Harry. They both uh, live in houses where they're mistreated. They both have potential far greater than that which their masters or person who guards them uh, sees in them. Um, they both have a tendency to do what they think is right rather than what they're supposed to. They both are totally okay with breaking rules. Um, <laughs> and um, I, I just wondered, and I guess this is sort of a psychoanalytic reading of this. So the Dursleys have this get together where Vernon's going to make a giant deal, right? A deal yeah. so big that he can buy a summer home on an island, or was it in Spain? It was, it was extraordinary. It was in Mallorca. Mallorca, in Spain, right. And so, like, this, this is apparently a tremendous deal. But these Dursleys, even though Harry is part of the family and should want good things for him, they mistreat him so much that one has to wonder whether that might make some ill will jump into him so that maybe unconsciously he wants to ruin their chance for success because they do not deserve it because of how unjustly they have treated him. And so Dobby might, in this instance, represent a, an unconscious misuse of magic on Harry's part as if like he didn't even mean to or something like that. It's, it, it reminds me sort of like a Mephistopheles character with Faust through the window and then making the thing that you want to happen happen, but taking responsibility for it, even, even though you have to catch the flack for it, it was technically that creature. It's maybe even a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde sort of thing. Yeah. So well, I was wondering, yeah. It's also the, the way that his, um, his friends have apparently forgotten all about him. Yeah. You know, it's, a, it's not just like a family but he's he's in a dark place here because because all the people he cares about most have apparently deserted him here. So, yeah. Yeah, and those two eyes, it's, it's yeah. almost like the trouble is inviting. It's like, oh, thank goodness, a magical thing. This was not because um, that yeah, was a concern. I, I was just gonna say, yeah, go on, Sarah. When he when he sees the eyes, he is like one page before, um, wondering if. Uh, maybe he didn't have any friends at Hogwarts. Maybe it didn't really happen. Um, but I like I, I like the idea of seeing Harry and and Dobby as um, as like having parallel characteristics. I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I don't want to. I don't think we can. And again, this is like telegraphing what happens later in the story. I think that they do end up like Dobby decisions do end up foreshadowing Harry's decisions, right? Um, uh, there's they self-sacrifice right um, they are deeply tied to the welfare of those who are like them and those who are not like them they seem to have a moral compass they can't they can't quite get away from um, they're rebellious I mean I, I don't think uh, Harry is as interested in like self-flagellation as as Dobby is but, but had nor does nor well, right. Nor does nor does Harry seem to feel guilt for breaking the rules in a way that Dobby 
does. So maybe maybe Dobby in a way is like like Harry. Um, in the, he can get away with things that Harry wants to have happen, but I I don't know I I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't only um you know no, like there, no, ha- have him only serve that purpose. Yeah, and and yeah, but I I do think that yeah I think I think he's you know he's mis he's mischievous um he's clearly outspoken um. He seems to love Dumbledore. Um, so in that sense, like he 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 has, um, he's got you know his head screwed on straight as much as a house elf could. Um, but so he's a force for good. Yeah, I think. Well, certainly the fact that he says Dumbledore is the greatest headmaster Hogwarts has ever known. Um, mm-hmm. Automatically, we know that he's on. What and that's also on. Harry's perspective too, right? Right. Um, right. And Hagrid's. Yeah, and Hagrid's, that's right. And something I wanted to mention about the Fantastic Beasts, just because we've been talking about Dumbledore as God, what's interesting is you see in the preview that he says that he cannot fight this battle against Grindelwald, that the, an actual human will have to fight it, Newt Scamander. And so he will fight through the yeah. hero, sort of like we'll see near the end of this text, that it will not be Dumbledore who fights the snake, dragon, Voldemort, demon, devil, but that it will be uh, a young hero manifesting the spirit of Dumbledore through his sword given by his phoenix. It will help so that well, the humans have to manifest the spirit of the divine. And that, body it. yeah. And that, that, um, to West here, the, the seemingly like the, the global you catastrophe in this world of Harry surviving um, Voldemort's attempt to kill him at happening before the story. I mean, if we want to reduce it completely to allegory, which I'm, I'm loath to do as was Tolkien about his own works, but, um, but like one way of looking at that is that like, he, you know, Harry as, as like the, the modern, the modern, the modern disciple, like the, the global, the global you catastrophe that Tolkien speaks of happened in his mind 2000 years ago. So, so each of us, Frodo, Sam, whatever, Harry, Alex, Wes, and Sarah, we are all, you know, like bearers of that. And that, like, I think that that's like, and, and yeah. And like that, that the you catastrophe does not deny future suffering, but rather denies its ultimate victory. That's, that's what he says in the essay that like, it doesn't mean that, it's not going to be sad or there's not going to be pain or, or weeping or death even, but like that it's not, it's not meaningless. It's not alone. It's not that that kind of thing. Like, um, I guess, um, uh, it, whenever you read fantasy, particularly like a fantasy series, and especially when you get into something as like morally ambiguous as, uh, uh, game of Thrones or song of ice and fire, that like it just seems like there's constant you catastrophe and constant catastrophe like there's there's nothing there's like there is no I don't think there is you catastrophe in in Game of Thrones just yet because it's nothing but rising action and like um and so it just because he wants you to keep waiting with baited six book which I don't believe is ever gonna happen until I see it but like I I think I think that that I mean that's one way to look at. At, at at what's 
at, at like the oh the big you catastrophe seems to be before this thing even starts yeah. well that doesn't mean it's the only one you know well, yeah and just to add a little to that just from the epic traditions you know the five big epics from the western tradition as defined by Moldemar adler um if the catastrophe is the acceptance of suffering um or the possibility of suffering in the future not sort of a diluted lotus-like state each one of the five epics has at least one moment like that the odyssey has the easiest one where uh odysseus in the very beginning book five leaves calypso's island where she explicitly says if only you knew what sufferings awaited for you out there, you would never leave. And he says, I'll still leave. And, you know, even though she's like, am I not more beautiful than your wife? He's like, you are, but I'm still going. Um, yeah, and so it, he leaves precisely because everything's too perfect there. It's too fantastic. It reminds me of what the architect says to Neo in the second Matrix movie, where he says that the original Matrix, which was, uh, a per- place of perfection because he was bound by the limitations of perfection. He, he arrogantly said, um, uh, failed because humans could not deal with it because there was no endeavor. in it. And so I guess I, I would say when, when I try and see the structure of one of these stories or identify Albus Dumbledore as like a figure of the divine, I'm not trying to reduce uh, the story into a, uh, it, like Tolkien warns against somebody doing and saying, oh, this is just a type of this story and therefore now we know everything about it, but rather to try and identify the universal sort of types and archetypes that manifest in all stories, especially stories of a certain type like high fantasy, and then to see how they differentiate out. So so it's like I'm trying to see what's objectively there, but also, or rather, what is shared between this story and others, but also what makes it deeply unique at the same time. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I get that. I get that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. go on, Wes. I, I, I thought that was interesting how, in that sense, Dobby is kind of like trying to stop Harry from accepting this dangerous role. Yes. That he's, right? he's trying to keep him safe, which is fine as long as you're, you know, uh, growing as long up. As you're willing to live in hell, right? Well, yeah. And, and it's, that is perfectly where Harry is, right? Stuck in that place with those muggles who now hate him. Sorry, go on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I was going to say just as long as you're like a child, right, growing up and you don't have the wherewithal to to contend with the danger, perhaps you, you do just kind of wait your turn, right? But but clearly after book one, he's he's proven himself. He's shown that he's capable of, of dealing with uh, all sorts of baddies and, and coming out alive again. And and so at the end, he has this dream. And I thought it was really interesting because it's yes. sort of... It, it, it links back to the first book um, pretty clearly there where he's in the zoo, right? And, the, and he's the underage wizard, underage wizard, right? So now he's been, he's been labeled and that's, that's no good. And then he's, he's starving on the bed of straw, right? Oh, and he's so sad. He's so sorry for himself. And they're all laughing. But, but Dobby calls, Harry Potter is safe there, sir. Uh-huh. And um, it turns out when he wakes up, right, he's, he's being busted out. So his friends who's be, who's, he's been waiting for are actually there finally. Yeah, it's, it strikes me as so similar to the Odyssey in that what it seems like is that known territory, which is that which is safe, for one, uh, does not stay safe because there will be dangers from the outside and we'll see that happen with a breakdown of order as, the, as Voldemort comes back to power. Or, <laughs> excuse me, he who must not be named. Don't want to trigger speak warning. Speak not the name. Um, but, yeah. yeah, speak not the name. Excuse me, excuse me. How dare I? Overbold, t- typical Gryffindor. And, um, but... um. <laughs> <laughs> but uh 
yeah, but so just like with Odysseus, who was with Calypso, a goddess who was perfect, he could be immortal. He got sick of that place. Why did he get sick of it? Because it was perfectly safe. The same reason that Westworld doesn't end up being perfectly great for the man in black, if anybody watches Westworld. That uh, without danger, the ultimate pleasures of life are denied to one, or the ultimate joys of life, the ultimate joy of life seeming to be meaning, which is that which transcends suffering. So it's almost as if you have to, like Adam and Eve and Milton's Paradise Lost, choose to go down into the world and accept the fact of suffering and death in order to have the ultimate experience that a mortal can have, which is actually the meaning of being mortal, which is meaning or -hmm. purpose. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, so it's like, well, Harry, you could be immortal in this one way and never die. um, But you would also never live sort of like how I think the alchemist Nicholas Flamel is being represented or <laughs> presented in a uh, fantastic beast as sort of a white ghost like figure who I don't know if y'all have seen that trailer yet, but he looks like someone who's sort of alive and also dead at the same time, which is like how Harry is when he's back at home. Right. Right. And so he needs danger. He needs risk. He needs the potential to break rules and to suffer in order to have meaning. I, I think Tolkien is right. I think, Peterson and the Buddhists and the, are correct in this. Uh, I think the Odyssey speaks to this. I think there are just abundant, excellent sources from every tradition across right. media that say, yeah, choose suffering and responsibility and your life can be full of magic. Hmm. Uh, choose the other thing and, you know, maybe you won't die, but maybe you'll never live. But I think that's pretty flawed logic too, because certainly you will die. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the great escape though right so tolkien talks about that too right somewhere along the line he's like there is there is the great escape the escape from death um yeah that that's that's seems to be something that this book is about right like the the jk rowling series is about the escape from death and the, the right way to go about it and the wrong way to go about it. uh as we saw with the unicorn's blood and and the sorcerer's stone last time right yeah. and so i guess part of this story still being an adolescent story a story of uh, changing from patient to agent in the world is that the the figures of liminality, the figures of limbo, the uh, psychopomps who take um, Harry from the world of the Muggles into the world of the magical folk are again are again outside of him. It's another pair of trickster sort of liminal uh, figures. So instead of Hagrid coming on a motorcycle to take him out, uh, and or and also on a boat to cross a water with him. Now it is the Weasley twins, who we'd already identified as sort of liminal figures, as trickster figures, hermetic figures. They they come with Ron in order with a a magic car, which is what so half Muggle and half magic right there. And you, we find actually that um, that Ron reads a comic about a funny Muggle, and and we find out actually that uh, Fred and George have learned how to lockpick like a Muggle we find out that Arthur Weasley here, Arthur, of course, being the name of King Arthur, though he's very poor, which is a deep irony. Um, he, he works for the department of, uh, I, I forget the specific name, but Muggle Affairs or uh, people who like bewitch things, specifically keys that get smaller and smaller, which I think are I, until you can't find them when you need them, which I think is ideology versus logos, being able to actually think. Ideology doesn't serve you when you need it uh, because you never produce your own weapon. But um, so these, these, all these Weasleys seem yeah. to be sort of 
taken up with the muggles. They seem to be interested in muggles and they seem to be sort of bridges between the worlds of muggles and, uh, and, and magical folks. They're very interested in the muggles and that puts them sort of low on the pecking order too because, because of their, uh, it seems like the aristocratic magical folk stay as far away from muggles as possible. Whereas the more democratic ones uh, who, who believe muggles are, you know, not lesser, um, they, they seem to be very fascinated by them. And that, that helps them. So just to say things in a long, long sort of way, one thing I might be interested in looking for as these books go on is whether uh, uh, Harry becomes more and more the agent of the transformation from the mundane world to the, the, the magical world, or whether he'll be taken uh, each time by some other agent, some other psychopomp, some some Charon or or or, or, or you know River Sticks crossing figure. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think it's interesting here that he uh, he he really needs a lot of help to bust out this time. Um, yes. More so, like I, I I guess it's interesting that it's not a um an official person sent from the school either but his, his friend and his friend's brothers, right, who um, become a bit more involved in the story here, uh, who, who come and do it this time. So it's like it's moving closer to him, at least, at least at this point, uh, to, to follow the trajectory, I think will be, will be cool. Um, the, the other thing I just noticed that I wanted to throw in was the, um, the, whole, the whole idea of eyes, like looking at him. So we see it with uh, Dobby, but then it, just at the end of chapter three, we see it with Ginny uh, or Ginny. How do you say that? Yes, Ginny from Ginevra. Yeah. Okay, so she's she's peering at him. Um, Her brown eyes with, with, from from through the chink in the door. Yeah, yeah. So she clearly um, has got a kind a kind of important role, although she's uh, just sort of there in in the background at this point. So she'll you can't get her to shut up, Ron says. <laughs> So, of course, grow into a very important character here. That, that's interesting. We see sort of multiple manifestations of nature popping out then in that respect. If Dobby, it potentially from one reading, is some sort of instinctual aspect of uh, Harry that will need to be freed, then um, then Ginny is also representation of nature and like sort of budding consciousness of the feminine and entering into a soon a conscious relationship with it, not quite ready yet. For that she's not quite ready to approach him and interact with him but uh perhaps soon but i have a question for y'all just sort of uh, as a fantasy question what do you think of the inversion of being so we're we are we have produced for us at the beginning of the second book in elf which is a figure of fantasy but this yeah. elf is totally inverted there's no high elf there's no elf of great lore and creation for creation's sake as tolkien say elves are that they are creations that value creation and are the sort of a sort of angelic creation by the human right. mind. Um, but that this elf is a lowly slave, ugly, pointed nose, far more like a goblin than a traditional perspective on an elf. And far, though he does seem to have strange powers that humans do not know much about and seems to perhaps be of some sort of ancient cast of creature that we cannot fully understand. But why, why is it that you think that we... We have this inversion that this this elf is enslaved, um, or that elves in this world happen to be enslaved. Ah, that's interesting. I mean, I was thinking about him in terms of the uh, the gnomes too, right? Ah. There's, there's like these little little 
creatures that pop out of the garden when you when you're not taking uh, care to to keep them out. They were uh, nothing like Santa Claus. <laughs> yeah, but then there's there's these elves which are apparently inherited along with like great old houses and um, right, old families have them. Uh, so I thought there was something there, kind of, to to trace the the line of of descent um, of these uh, these magical creatures. You have these ones that are are they are in a sense high, right? But they've been um, they've been enslaved, uh, which, which seems like very very ripe for for sort of metaphor, right? So it's like this this great power of magic, which is being um, ignored and, and put to, to negative uses and uh, lowly uses beneath yeah, yeah. it's beneath it's sort of like a dark side dark. of the force sort of oh, idea yeah. that so and what's interesting is that recalls to me another point uh that tolkien talks about in his fairy stories that just as um we we first see the sky but then we can we can derive adjectives to describe it and then we can pull them apart we can say first there's sky but then there's blue sky the first way we're ever presented house elves is house elves and uh, aristocratic magic folk. They're one and the same. They're all part of the same family. It takes mm-hmm. our differentiating minds to just look at the house elves. So the natural way to look at it is what aspect of the family of the aristocratic uh, magic folk do the elves represent and perhaps the abuse of their innate magic or creative quality in order to maintain their static or rigid position in society or something like that, that like you said, they've, they've put that which is of high value to low use. Uh, I think even Tolkien has a quote like that, right? That yeah. the high is being subserved to the low in that respect. Um, yeah. One place at least is he's talking about the use of fairy stories uh, for children, right? They're, yes. they're, they're sort yes. of relegated to the nursery or something like that. So right. yeah. And and in a way, the the high elves, yeah, I think are kind of angelic in some sense. And Dobby is, yeah, like a little. He's like a, a funny little doll or something. He's, a, he's like diminutive and um and squeaky and and cute. I mean, it's just the little <laughs> Dobby with his little, you know, he's cute. Little Dobby. <laughs> um, he so he's in a way I think. Um, a very good pair with Ginny because because uh, he he looks on Harry with such admiration, right? And such, you know, he expresses it, of course, very differently. But uh, yeah. Huh. Well, so let's move to the borough. So yeah. one interesting thing about this is we get the continued theme that Ron is nervous about being seen as poor to Harry. So from the very first time he ever met Harry and felt sort of bashful about admitting that he had hand-me-down robes and hand-me-down wand and couldn't afford all that candy that Harry could. Um, but Harry sort of made friends with him by saying that, no, he had been similar and used to have hand-me-downs too, and he had just inherited all this money, so he didn't really deserve it, sort of like his claim, his claim initially being, and um, they sort of put that to rest. But we see the same sort of concern uh, arise here. The borough has been sort of ragtag put together over time it hasn't been sort of planned so it's sort of a representation of society or culture in that respect like a tree it seems to be the idea behind how it grows in an organic way bottom up 
um, and also has a figure of the great mother in it, um, Mrs. Weasley, and also of sort of a uh, great demiurgic father as well, I would say, the Ronald or Arthur Weasley, the great yeah. king um, of, of this castle. But, um, but Ron, when he shows uh, uh, Harry into his house, he, not only is he like, no, we would never have a house elf. We just have gnomes. We have a stupid banshee. Then he shows him a small room that Ron almost hits his head on. He's outgrowing that, just like he's outgrowing his sort of family right now as an adolescent. Um, he's soon going to be you know, his own man. But um, it's, again, all of this is new to Harry, just like it's all new to us. And so it's wonderful to him. And so it's like Ron is continually missing it. It's like, Ron, you are Harry's best friend in liaison to a magical world, literally a magical world. You are... You are like a lightning rod for joy. <laughs> um, but, but, but Ron sort of, uh, it, it, you know, I, perhaps it's a habit of him to be, to be uh, ashamed of, of the sort of poverty of the home. But what, what that sort of shows to me is that he just mistakes uh, lick material success with real success because the home seems to be a very successful home, right? Everybody is magical. They are all Gryffindor and brave. There are five children. It, it does work, even though it's like patchwork put together. There's a stable society and every... I mean, the, the family is a very proud family to have, or, or one should be proud to have such a family and be part of such a family, and Ron does seem to be. But, um... Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I love the burrow. I mean, I love that it's called the burrow, and it, you know, yeah. it goes up into the sky so right. it's kind of it's this down yet up sort of thing from the beginning uh the the mother of course and the father are, are delightful uh characters um her her sort of like attraction who she fancies uh gilderoy lockhart yes. that's, that's pretty that's pretty cute and she's got like the radio on like the singing sorceress who's, who's crooning or whatever so yeah i mean you could just sort of like really enter into this world and that's i think pretty crucial that this book we get established um, in book one, you know, the, the distinction between the magical and the muggle worlds. But here we finally get to see like a wizard's house, you know, yes. it's fantastic. Um, and, and so it's, it's great. Cause yeah, Ron is, is seeing all of the negative things about it. Um, he's at that age. Space to him too. Yeah. And, and yet um, from Harry's perspective, you know, which is a lot like our perspective, this is just, I mean, this is the greatest thing. Uh, and I think for kids, you know, for kids reading the book, I, I don't know about others, but like I had a real small family. And so it was like, it was so cool to get to see what it would be like, you know, to have this like bunch of people all in all in the house together and like all the chores and all the activities suddenly become like much more fun because you're like with all these other people all the time, you know? Um, yeah. More, and, more games that you can yeah. suspend belief in conjunction with that was something i was noticing so again just something about the tolkien essay he says that a good piece of fantasy like a good game allows you to suspend your disbelief so you can simplify the world for a small amount of time and then sort of squeeze optimal meaning and passion out of a situation by striving towards a very simple and coherent goal like actually score a goal if you're a soccer, soccer player or something like that but yeah i had the same feeling i also came from a small family and um just the fact that they made the chores in Huck Finn, Tom Sawyer sort of way into a game. How far can we chuck these gnomes? 
And also the idea that that could have not only been boring, but dangerous, right? Because if the gnomes smell fear or lack of competence, they bite you like they did to Harry. And, you know, he could have been a poor sport about it and he could have not gotten into it. And so it's sort of like teaching a young person and perhaps even us too, the sort of metagame, right? It's like if you get into something, if you allow yourself to suspend disbelief, life actually gets better for that amount of time and then better in general. And then people actually might invite you to play more games. And so, yeah. you know, that becomes a good experience for, for Harry, um, rather than just like a dull humdrum experience that would have never been included in the story at all. Um, I think there's an important distinction, and I, I might get this wrong, but uh, Tolkien is, is quoting the thing about suspension of disbelief, but that's not his coining. That's from, uh, I think, and he's criticized, he's critiquing it a little. He's like, well, that's not quite... I mean, okay. I think the way you described it, the way you described it is, I think, a lot like what Tolkien is saying. But he okay. he wants to say that it's more like it's more like what happens is you you enter into this world because it's it's that compelling. And you know yeah. that it's not, it's not real and you're not like working against your sense of it not being real. Like it doesn't matter that it's not real. Right. In some sense, it is real because it's that cool. It's that it's the game. Right? Like, while you're right. playing the game, the game is real. It's everything. And so to have that sort of perspective of something is is the mark of like a great a great work of art um yeah and so that's kind of like what's going on here right and it's not really harry's um willingness or dis or unwillingness to get into it it's like the thing bites him and he's like oh this is serious i gotta yeah. i gotta fling it uh i gotta fling it away so um it's like the yeah sort of like life in that there is not a non-serious way to play it you can either be having fun or it can be biting you yeah yeah and that's huh. that seems to be that seems to be the sort of magical thing about reading um, fantasy, right? Like it, it really likes, it sinks its teeth into you. Um, you could, you could imagine um, like the matrix or something, right? A, a totally, um, a totally convincing uh, drama, right? Tolkien wants to like sort of imagine what, what, what the fairy and drama would be like. You'd be so immersed, right? You'd be, right. and that's dangerous. That's, that's actually quite dangerous. So. Well, and it seems Maybe. quite dangerous because, because of the fact that if we can model you know, an ideal place in fantasy, then we can then affect change in our own actions as we pursue embodying that sort of fantasy. Sort of the interplay that Dante talks about with Beatrice's ideal and Dante as pursuer of the ideal, ideal in the Paradiso. At each level he goes up of the Paradiso, the more he learns, the more beautiful Beatrice becomes, meaning that the sharper he becomes, the sharper his ideal becomes. And so... The idea here being that the better we can, the better we can visualize the ideal future, the more the the more we can sharpen our actions or refine our actions or enact our actions in such a way as to bring about the, that sort of future in a better or more efficient way. And so, just as like a very big question and hypothesis, um, it would be: I wonder if we indulge in this this sort of collective mythopoetic fantasy making order to produce a collective image of heaven to collectively pursue in a conscious sort of way um yeah yeah i mean that is that's mm -hmm. that's a big one to to kind of like encapsulate something about i mean it does seem to be a matter of of wish fulfillment right um and like the the parrot the way that you go about that um seems to be like dramatized in some sense here um the the funny thing too is like i think we talked about this 
in the beginning of the other books, the the way that there's there's things that are are concealed, right? And that's that that gets a little bit of a comic treatment here as well. Um, the 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 deception of um, Mr. Weasley with his flying car, right? Ah, yes. Uh, becomes becomes laid bare here. Um, so there's there's conflict on that level as well, where it's like you you've done something which is wrong, right? You know that it's wrong. Um, and then it comes, it turns out to, you know, it's, it's the way that they rescue Harry. Like they, they bust him out with it. So it's like, I think that's a big part of the, the you catastrophe element. It's like something that you think is, is a bad thing uh, turns out to be a good thing, you know? And like, even if you are deceiving and you're, you, you know, you're doing wrong, like that too can work out to, to the best uh, by, by luck or by, Whatever. Yeah, the yeah. coming of consciousness as an act of thievery, a Promethean act, a Bilbo. And, uh, <laughs> uh, which is interesting because then uh, uh, Arthur Weasley, as sort of a Prometheus, would have been giving flight to a car, sort of like giving consciousness to it, which we'll actually see is actually literally true because a car will manifest a consciousness um, <laughs> uh, later on as it returns to nature whence it came as a manufactured product, which would be just a very interesting sort of idea. Um, but um, uh, that uh, the car, the car can, I'm sorry, I'm losing my point, uh, going on that, that dang tangent, like, like <laughs> usual. Um, sorry, I lost it. Um, <laughs> I'm, seeing, I'm seeing some italics. I don't know. Are you talking about like, he wasn't intending to fly the car. Oh, yeah, very good, very good. The unintended consequences coming about through the gift of consciousness. Sort of like, so he just sort of gives the car the ability to, to fly. Sort of like in the Adam and Eve story, you know, there just is a tree that can give you consciousness. It can, you know, teach you good and evil. And it's like, I don't, I'm not intending for anybody to use it. I'm just making this exist. So, you know, and I, I forget... Who was it that says the the very fa famous director that says if there's a shotgun on the mantle in the first act, then it better be used by the third. That's uh, Anton. Anton Chekhov. Very good. Yeah, thank you. Not a not a, not a famous novelist, then, I guess, or a playwright too. Yes. Yes. And, uh, and, um, he, he was yeah, and uh, yeah, of course, playwright. Yeah, three acts. And um, uh, so 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 this. Was meant to be used in some way to bridge the gap between the magical and the muggle world, even though that would technically be illegal. Um, and well, I guess something just interesting about that is just like house elves have to self-flagellate themselves so that the aristocrats can keep their hands clean because they're not punishing the elf. The elf punishes itself for its own incompetence, and so that justifies their perspective on their lower nature because they're punishing themselves, which is sort of circular reasoning. So does so does Arthur Weasley sort of, well, it's not my fault, even though his wife sees through that. She sees the loophole for how he created this car was written in by him so that he could do this, ideally so that his mischievous sons could use it to test his theory about it, which he seems very deeply interested in. How did it work, he says. Um, though that is not the appropriate thing for him to say because the great mother, uh, Mrs. Weasley, uh, she, she turns beat red at that and, well... Uh, then, then the, the children have to leave the table. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me a bit of Zeus and Hera, though Hera made even larger than life in this case, um, um, even larger than Zeus. Um, 
Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so I guess the the point I was just obliquely making is that uh, it, Arthur Arthur seems to be doing with that car what Dumbledore was doing with the challenges in the castle in the first story. That like sort of like a figure of the Great Father or of the Divine Puzzle Master. He sort of puts the pieces of the puzzle uh, on the table, and the young conscious individuals or who are who are manifesting heroism or becoming who they are are going to have to play that puzzle or play that game. Um, and that he takes great interest in like sort of the data that's produced. So just like uh, Dumbledore is very interested in what Harry did on the night against Quirrell Voldemort, so is Arthur Weasley very interested in the night that his sons and Harry have just had as well. Um, not exactly sure where I'm going with that, but I was just trying to see parse out whether there was that sort of para parallelism there. Um, yeah. I I was I was curious about the um the the role of the book here. If if I want, could just like shift gears to that. Yeah. Um because we're we're told about this uh Gilderoy Lockhart's guide to household pests. Um, he knows his household pests, says Mrs. Weasley. Yes. Yes. And and so the book and him are uh, Gilderoy are sort of like the same thing, right? It's a big photograph of a very good-looking wizard uh, on the front, right? So it's like that. I that made, it, that made me immediately think of okay, so like where where we're headed is is this this diary, right? Um, and just to like to think a little bit about this example of the conflation of the person with the book um, or the person with the story. Uh, that seems to be like a really interesting little theme that's going on here where um that's of course like fame right like harry potter yeah. and, famous and of image story. Of reality. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because it's, so it's like, yeah go on well it's funny because it's like we're gonna see how how differently people react to that sort of thing right like um mm. ron ron befriends him because you know he also can can sort of like see that there's there's just a person there you know and and then on the other hand you have people like uh Ginny who like are just blown away and like they, they can't even like bring themselves to talk to him the mom you know just treats him like one of her own like like a kid that needs needs a mother right so there's all these different ways to to interpret right that 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 situation so yeah I just think it's cool yeah yeah and Sarah I don't know do we have you over over there sorry we've been Sort of yeah. Yeah. No. I just. I'm just. I'm just listening. Uh, I'm just listening. Yeah. Here. Well, a question. Yeah. Well, me too. <laughs> uh, uh, well, so I, I. I have a question for maybe both of you, but whether you distinguish. So, Wes, you brought up. I thought very interesting the idea of um, the story, and the person, the relationship between a person. We'll see that with Ginny. We'll then get caught up in the story of Tom Riddle. Will get sort of possessed by him in, in a similar, not the same way as Quirrell gets sort of possessed by Voldemort in a certain way or by a dark idea. Um, but that we also see Lockhart and his his face on a book. And so I was wondering whether there was a distinction maybe between the relationship between a person and their own story and image and reality in this case. That what what sort of Lockhart sort of is like, and a lot of people will probably say like sort of like President 
Trump in the advertising sense that is that he puts forward an image that's different from how he actually is. He puts forward the image of these and these stories of tremendous competence, which because of the positive halo effect, because he's very handsome and a very good advertiser, people believe and will concede to him. But in reality, we'll find out he's he's actually the opposite of a good teacher or a good role model. He the only thing he can do effectively is confound, right? Rather than enlighten or illuminate, he can confuse and destroy your memory. And so sort of what he starts to represent for me is, uh, on the first hand, he is the sort of fraud or phony that you would see in, a, in our regular world. So he is, he's an addition from our primary world into the secondary world. Yeah. And, um, and, and two, that, well, just how that would specifically manifest in a strange and uh, different way in this, in this magical world. So, so I wonder if, if you didn't put your, your finger on, on the, uh, the button of the difference between a character and their story being the sort of the substance and a, a person and his, his, and his projected image or persona being, uh, I don't know, the, the superficial aspect of a person or a story or, or, or a life. I don't even know if that's a coherent question at this point. <laughs> really reaching uh, today. Uh, that's, I, I think, I think I'm seeing something there. I mean, like, it's always an interesting dilemma. Like, how do you approach a work? Do you deal with the author's context and, and their situation and their life and, and where the work fits in their life? Or do you try to take the work on its own and somehow read sort of within it and, and what it what it shows you within that and, and deal just with that? And I think there, there's pros and cons to both, of course, um, but, there's, but there's a real danger of, of missing, mistaking one for the other or like thinking that there's that there's a total overlap between the person and their story or, or whatever kind of work it might be. Um, and I think the, the, the most important image, I think that that's there is like, the image of of the perfected, the finished, the final word on something, and if you think you've got that, then I mean, of course, you're set up for for dis, for disillusionment, right? Because th there's always more, and the story is still developing, right? We meet this guy in the next chapter or two, right? He, he's still he's still doing stuff, so you can't have the final word on him, and and that seems to be like a little bit of what Mrs. Weasley's got going on. If she's if she fancies him, right? Well, she's got mm -hmm. this ideal of him that she's fallen in love. Well, not, you know, whatever. She's got her little illusions. Um, and she seems to be aware that that's like not good. She's, she's, she blushes, she's ashamed, um, but she can't help it, right? Like there's, that, there's always that temptation, um, to have the, the kind of overlap or, or mistaking the, the image versus the reality, right? And it, sometimes maybe it's harmless, but I think it, it's just, it's a really interesting little thread, I think, that I'm going to try to watch for as we go through. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. yeah think, go on, Sarah. Uh, I was just going to say, um, it's an interesting contrast to Dobby, who's mm. so like, physically unattractive, right? Um, <laughs> or just he, these, like, well, but not really. I mean, like, like, the way he's described is, like, not at all cute. Like, I mean... Yeah, his like eyes gaze up at Harry with like 
adoring admiration and they twinkle, but he's also a creepy little elf and like basically in in like rags. Right. Yeah, with very sharp with, like, features. Yeah. He's he's not described yeah, as cute. You're right. No, so I mean he's not like he's not even a, like a troll, a troll doll with like a little the little gem like gem in it. And they're not cute because they're creepy, True. but but like um I don't know, like Dobby tells the truth and he's not mm-hmm. a, um some I mean he tells the truth but tells it slant. Like he doesn't tell the whole truth. Um because he can't, but um but we know we later find out that Lockhart is a fraud, um, but he he like trades on his looks. And I think part of it is the intent to deceive and to make money off of deception. That's gross, uh, right? And like, you know, you brought up our, you know, our dear leader. So <laughs> I don't have to, but like, but like, but like that is intentional deception and gaslighting 101, 102, 401, 402, whatever. Like, but... But I guess, um, I don't know, Mrs. Weasley, to me, is the, is like, um, and she, yeah, like you said, Wes, like, she knows that she's a victim of it, but she maybe can't help herself. And I think that's the thing about, that's the thing about stories, though, is that, like, stories aren't always, um, like, good teachers, you know, they can be, but, like, they don't always i mean they certainly never give one story never gives a whole picture um no matter how great or classic it may be and like a story's um though i mean you know and like the case in point would be like in tolkien's world the great story like how misused does that great story get like 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 um how many christians or self-professed christians are there walking around who think taking kids away from their parents is morally acceptable. Like how many, how many of those people are like, that's an abuse of story. Um, And um, I I guess um, maybe that's something that we're going to see of this particular story, no pun intended, but maybe it's something that was a thread in the first book is that appearances are not often, um, not only are they not often um, real, like we, our perception can be deceived, but they're all, they're certainly never complete. Um, so, so like, and those are not, that's not the same thing, right? Like not only like we can be deceived by what we're seeing, but also how complete of a picture. Well, let me jump in on that because Um, you just gave me a, a, a good thought that I think might help answer Wes's question in an actual coherent way. What, what it is that Mrs. Weasley likes about, Lockhart is the story that has been sold to her about him. So what she likes is actually admirable, right? It's the story of this hero that has faced danger, that is a great man who is now going to then teach Harry whom she loves because her because she loves Harry, for one, but also because her family loves Harry and she deeply loves her, her family. And now Lockhart is going to self-sacrificingly be his teacher and we see that Hermione also falls for him too just something interesting to put about that is that seems also to be why Ginny likes Harry too the story about Harry though Harry has actually lived out his story so that might be a difference between how Harry actually embodies his story and Guild and Lockhart Lockhart, uh, sort of contrives his story there's a difference between what what he sells and how it works differently from uh from from harry 
or that's very different from Harry, but just something weird about that because you said it doesn't, that maybe the story doesn't teach the best lesson here, but it possibly also does teach something real here because recently Wes and I read this book, A Billion Wicked Thoughts by Ogi Ogas and Sai Gadam. And one of the people, so they did all these studies and they had this person who, uh, an anecdote here of a lesbian meeting Bill Clinton. And she said, that even though she didn't like Bill Clinton personally, Zafir Lewinsky, she couldn't help but be attracted in his presence. And even though that her sexual orientation was not towards men. And so Saigadam and Ogi Ogas are like, why would that be? And there seem to be status receptors for humans uh, that are governed by our serotonin systems. And uh, I think part of our limbic system in the back of our brain. Uh, But basically high status individuals humans cannot help but be attracted to and will actually stare at for longer periods of time. So even though Lockhart is a fraud, he is still famous and therefore high status and famous enough to get a position at Hogwarts too and to you know sell millions of copies. And so even though he might not deserve what he has, you might say that maybe about Kim Kardashian or something like that uh, because they have no talent but are perhaps very beautiful uh, or no manifested talents anyway. Um, so, but that, but that what we start to see here is a, a real part of our, 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 our world, perhaps an unfair part, but also a real part and a natural part that the people who are sort of the famous people, the top dogs, they get the affection. And, uh, even if that's seemingly irrational. Right. I, 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 that's, those are interesting. And I definitely think that that's right. Like. Possibly also because, possibly also because, pe- people who are in those positions carry themselves differently, and maybe it's that the viewer is captivated by their status. Maybe it's that they are aware of their status, mm. so they carry themselves in a different way. That is their. I mean, maybe that's what's captivating. But my my, I think my point. Maybe I wasn't. I wasn't. Um, I'm tired, so I'm not. I'm not being clear. I but, know it's late for um, you. And my my brain is not. My brain is not thinking Confundous clearly at the moment. <laughs> but but my exactly, I've been conf- confounded. <laughs> um, but that um, but that part of the responsibility to that is in the eye of the beholder. I hate that phrase because it's so cliche. But like, and that's why she blu- Maybe that's why she blushes. Maybe it's not. Maybe she blushes because he's a cute guy on the back of a book. <laughs> like, um. And like she's a middle-aged woman who's like maybe not as beautiful as she was on her wedding day, but has certainly not lost her charm. Um, but like I, I, I guess um, I, I what I meant when I said that not all stories are good is that stories are tools, right? And they can be used for ill and they can be used for good and how they are used, right? And that's what we'll see eventually is that like, all that was is a freaking journal and it gets used for something really evil. The journal in and of itself becomes like it's transformed into a tool, like a, an object of evil, but like there are tools. Right. Like people say of guns and Martin Heidegger's philosophy after he turns Nazi. I mean, I don't, I don't want to get into a debate on guns because I actually don't feel that way about guns, but like, I, I mean, just general perspective on them. Yes, but like, but that, like, 
things like and I, I guess you could say the same thing about ideas. Yes, ideas can be used for ideas can be used and and part part of what makes an idea or a story um like part of what makes it like dangerous is when it is a ill thought out idea or when it is an unquestioned idea and so like nobody nobody has thought to question Gilderoy Lockhart cuz look at the man he's so freaking good looking like nobody has thought to question any of these people in power um oh, oh look at them they're so beautiful they they make so many nice awesome. movies they have so much money let's let's never ask questions of how they treat other people like and i i'm we're in a time where um i think a lot of these questions are being asked and i think some of them are being asked in a way that's like maybe not the best way but whatever but like it's a time of real tension it's just easier not to ask questions sometimes i mean you know, like yeah but something very interesting but, about but, what you were just saying is that it's almost as if the, the the stories were fed about those in power, whether from, say, movie fame or sports fame or political fame, um, as oversimplifications because of our capacity to, to, to receive information via social media. Like those stories, perhaps we're at a time when so many people are getting blown up who are famous. It's because um, we are so capable of blowing holes in those stories so fast because we can actually see the real shape of people's lives as people rather than as public figures or figures of fame, right? Um, because part, part of like their glamor, like in an eldish sort of way is when you look at like the home run hitter, he is like the great hero. But then when you find out that, you know, he cheated on his taxes and did cocaine at one time and also HGH, it's hard to project that image of heroism on it him anymore he's all too human and so um it's as if these figures that we once projected greatness onto because of their their status we're now chipping away at those those images in in order to see the person as they are and maybe maybe that's even a good thing but also what you were saying yeah i was just yeah i just wanted to bring up tolkien's quote there the latin phrase abusus non tolate usum which means you know how something is used or how how one use something is should not define how how does not define the thing itself. So you know if somebody uses a sword to kill somebody, that's not the sword's fault; it's the person's fault. Is seems to be the idea behind, or the basic idea behind that uh, that quote. And that seemed to be what you were saying about the power of story too. That it's not a story or an idea uh, that's necessarily evil, but the application of it in the world and so that it's not say like Gilderoy Lockhart's story that's evil but it is his misuse or fraudulent use eighth circle of Dante like use of his story which is so evil and potentially I don't know is that do you, I guess this is the end of the book so we shouldn't get yeah. into it but is that is that what happens with the the story of Tom Riddle the the diary of Tom Riddle that it's it's a, a story potentially has malevolence in it or something and that it 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 exerts an effect on jenny that she's not prepared to have then i i don't know how to ask the question it does it's almost as if the idea behind that story is that it can that a bad story or a powerful enough story can corrupt the will of a human i i don't know if i can verify that yet we have to get to the end of the story i suppose well, yeah, I no. mean, I, I know that we, yeah, we have to get to the end of the story, but also we never, ever learn what the story says. Right. Oh, that's a good right. We never, that's, 
that's completely I mean all we ever see is what it says to right. Harry so like um I don't yeah I mean I guess you know that you want to absolve the user of of being manipulated by this thing but and maybe you can because of her age and her youth uh, and her inexperience or whatever right. but I don't know just to get it back to the burrow like um I mean that's I think part of why Oh man, I'm losing my train of thought here. Um, I just wanted to say that I think part of why we have this, this so the at this point in the first novel, uh, there's so many parallels in the first three chapters to the first three chapters of um, uh, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Maybe we can lay those out of detail in the next episode too. Um, yeah, but just that, like this is this. Um, the third chapter in the first book is where Harry's like exposed to magic for the first mm-hmm. time. This is the the third chapter is where he's, he's exposed to a magical family, and I don't know. I I think we're supposed to see the the Weasleys as the ideal, even with, if they don't have money. Um, but like this big, vital, buzzing, exciting family that has like this. I mean, Mrs. Weasley goes from um, really angry to really kind of coquettish to demanding to uh she she she's everything in these chapters and i mean she's extraordinarily she's she's or extraordinarily ordinary like she is exact and you know what i mean like like she's she's got all the ordinary books in her like that you'd expect a home a homemaking wife to have a cookbook a gardening book of like a, a book for all of the fast solutions to things. She's she's snarky with her children. She's um, you know, she's she knows exactly how to scold each of them. Um including the dad. I don't I don't know. Yeah, including the dad and like um she's passionate, she's loving, she overfeeds Harry. Um, you know, like I I I just I see her as very ordinary. Um, and like, there's something really warm about her, but, um, like she's also imperfect, right? Like, so she's, she finds this Gilderoy Lockhart creature. I mean, she seems perfectly happily married, but he's, oh, look, he's so good looking. Um, like, I I don't know. There's something, there's something, I, I, I just thought that that's, it's significant that they're like, they're like a really imperfect family, right? Like he, the husband's breaking the laws, but. (laughs) whatever the 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 two brothers get into trouble all the time right like percy's like percy's a a prat right (laughs) but they love him anyway like they're they're everything nothing is perfect and there is a perfection in them Mm -hmm. um and i don't know like that's important than more important than in the dursley's house where everything has to be perfect and nothing Mm -hmm. is right um or and it's so fake i don't know um i don't know how that's related to our question of of appearance well and, uh, yeah no possibly a difference between like say a tyranny but, but, and a democracy there but also just the fact that you say that it's so perfectly ordinary it is also purely fantasy and the fact that uh, a sort of symbol or secondary reality could be so internally consistent with our primary reality here or primary world that we would think that 
this woman is presented in a perfect way. Like that seems to be what you're saying that she's the perfect representation of an ordinary person with all her foibles and flaws and individual differences as you would imagine it. And she, and she knows <laughs> right. like, it's, it's almost though, right. It's almost as though that's like the most, that is the most extraordinarily extraordinary and unusual yeah. thing about her, well, but you accept it as real. Yeah. You, the way she even sees time, time to do this, time to do this. Yep, like she seems so much like a mom. <laughs> um, like, and I don't, I maybe she's, and I don't think, I mean, not all moms are the same, but like she seems to have all of the elements. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, the magic. but I think that that's significant. <laughs> yeah. Well, and let's be real. I don't know about yours, but my mom is pretty magical if I think about all the this. <laughs> The shit that she does and the shit that she puts up with, like, I mean, there is an ordinary, like, primary world magic in motherhood. Principally speaking, their bodies grew another human being. And, like, and, like, I mean, you laugh, but, like, your body can't do that. Like, I mean, I mean, and that is just, the, that's the magic of, I mean, that's the magic of creation that we're supposed to have awe and wonder at when we close the book, right? That that's, that's like femininity recovered. Like you don't look at, you don't think of femininity as Kim Kardashian. You think of femininity as like what a woman like has been created to do. Right. And how that Kardashian gets a lot of her fame from precisely the ratio between her hips and shoulders, which is femininity embodied. So yeah. Right. But I, I'm just, I'm just saying that like, it's not about physical beauty. Like that's, I, I don't, I don't know why she's famous. I couldn't tell you. Well, but just like, good functionality like it's not about, that you, you mentioned. Um, I'm, yeah, but I'm, we shouldn't it, be it talking makes me think, shit about It makes me like think that, about um, Harry's mom, right? So I think, I think that's like another side of it, right? So there's, there's the totally ordinary, there's the um, sort of archetypal or, or the feminine um, ability to give birth. But then there's this this lingering question about what Harry's mom exactly did in that moment, That's and exactly. it's explained as as love, right? So far as we understand it, um, this great love that she had, which is now um, still protecting Harry, and and so that seems to be like we're seeing another illustration of that great theme uh, played out here with uh, with the with the burrow and uh, Mrs. Weasley. Uh, right. which almost is the ultimate act of motherhood as sacrifice is like or or that what an orphan gets that no other child gets is the perfect example of the willingness of a human to sacrifice her life so that another human gets a chance at life so mm-hmm. that one sees sort of the pinnacle of existence from the very beginning of one's existence so obviously he doesn't have a mother and that's terrible and it would be much preferable to have a mother rather than a great heroic example. But also what he does have is a real embodied heroic example to follow for the rest of his life in a way that other people do not. Uh, which, which mm. since we haven't mentioned Neville today, is ah. something that connects Harry yeah. to Neville. Yes, yes. His parents having, you know, terribly, and, you know, even characters in the, the story shudder at this, been tortured until they became insane. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, instead of giving up their friends, opposite of Peter Pettigrew, who will soon find, and so that, um, and so, so just like the, the act of motherhood is, 
is potentially the act of ultimate sacrifice, giving ultimate meaning to the young child's life, suggesting that someone loved you so much that they would give up their own existence so that you could exist. Um, and that that's what Harry can live with, even though, even though he's so mistreated for so much of his life in the beginning of it, um, that, that he has a charm over his life that protects him in a way that, that no one else could understand, potentially. Especially not hyper-rational Luciferian Voldemort. Um, yes. Well, yeah. I, I, sh I should get going here. I, I did want to throw that in before we... We signed off, and I'm glad that Neville was mentioned. So I think that right, right. This, yeah. this this brings it, I think, for me to a good stopping point for now. All right. So how about the next three chapters? I, I guess we could do two chapters or or three, depending on how much we want to read. Uh, four is at Flourish and Blots, which would be great. Five is the Wamping Willow. And then mm -hmm. six is Gilderoy Lockhart, who we did talk about some today. So yeah. do we want to read through that? Yeah, that sounds good to me. Sure, sounds good. All right, y'all. Well, thank you very much. And Sarah, thanks for staying up until the... the, the yeah, no problem. Morning. Sorry, sorry, I got quiet there. I just, I was listening and I was like, wow, I got literally nothing to contribute. Uh, well, that's kind of how I felt as I was speaking as well, so... <laughs> I was like, where's Neville? I need a friend. Um, <laughs> yeah. sorry, 10 sorry, points I'm, for Gryffindor. You know, 10 it's points. Funny. It's something <laughs> Peterson often says. He's like, I'm at the edge of my thinking now, so I'm going to get incoherent. I think about half of, half of today was being at the edge of my thinking and being half incoherent. So, so thank you. So uh, thank you for abiding that. Uh, uh, I apologize. Uh, no, no. Yeah, very rough draft. No. Very rough draft there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, y'all. All right. I'll see you guys see you later. later. Talk to you later. You. All right. Take it easy. Good night. Good night.